Hi, my friends. I do this work with all my heart for you. So please contribute generously to Future Primitive. my friends who listen to Future Primitive. Today, I'm very grateful to uh, welcome Stefan Harding. He is the author of Animate Earth, Science, Intuition, and Gaia, which was published in 2006 by Chelsea Green Books. He holds a doctorate in ecology from the University of Oxford. Stefan taught Wildlife Ecology at the National University in Costa Rica before joining Schumacher College, the renowned international center for transdisciplinary ecological studies in rural England. Stefan is a uniquely gifted teacher and lecturer. And so today we will have the wonderful honor of speaking with him. Also, uh, he has put out a documentary film that is called Inanimate Earth. This film features interviews with leading environmentalists, scientists, and spiritual teachers, including Brian Goodwin, Ian McGilchrist, Fritov Kapra, Vandana Shiva, Jules Cashford, and Satish Kumar. Well, perhaps in this case, shall we begin by talking about the film, which is a fairly recent work of yours? Mm-hmm. Well, actually, it was started by one of our students here on the MSc in Holistic Science that I, I head up here at the college, and he wanted to make a film um, about the learning that he'd encountered here. Um, and so he started that as his dissertation project, and then soon enough a professional filmmaker uh, got involved, Sally Angel, who'd worked a lot with the BBC, and she took it on board as well and converted it um, into you know, a really well-polished um, documentary. Um, and so it's a, a kind of summary of the holistic thinking that... Um, stems from science here at Schumacher College. Um, And I think if people wanted to get a a quick overview of the worldview that we are cultivating here, that's a good place to start. If Mm -hmm. they prefer images and sound to reading, that's a good place to start. Right, right. So, uh, Stefan, what ignited your soul? How did, did it begin for you that you came to a different sensing of your relationship with the planet? Mm. Well, I've had a very strong love of nature since I was a child. I was born in Venezuela, in South America, and my father tells me that when I was very little, you know, maybe two or three, I would spend long periods of time just looking at tropical flowers. And I love flowers. So he he thought it was unusual for a small child to do that. And I've always been, as a child, I was always turning over stones to look for little creatures, you know, and 
um, collecting little creatures and uh, trying to save them in the wild. Um, so I think <clears throat> I had my soul was ignited right from the start um, by by the natural world. I do remember some <clears throat> key moments. A one key moment I remember was when I was six and going down to the garden, our garden in London, mm-hmm. and turning over some stones and finding little creatures called woodlice. Uh-huh. Um, I'm not sure if you have them in Santa Fe, but they <laughs> like damp areas, you know. Uh-huh. They're sort of a terrestrial, almost like a terrestrial, not crab, but they're, they're related to the crabs distantly. Anyway, and I used to hold them in my hand, you know, and they're only about mm, three quarters of a centimeter long. Beautiful little creatures. And I just love spending time with them. Um, and I used to go into the cellar in our flat in London, and uh, I used to collect house spiders and keep them uh, up in jars up, up up in my room, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I always had animals with me. Um, so it's something I can, I, I've had right from the beginning of my life, or yes, pretty much from the beginning of my life, and it's just kept going and going and going, this, this love of nature. But also, it took me into science. I thought the best way I could find out more about nature was through science. And I found then that I had developed a love-hate relationship with science, that um, I loved the scientific knowledge that I gained from, say, zoology and biology. But I also found there was a a soullessness and a dryness which um, I couldn't really handle. Uh, There was a lack of poetry, a lack of um, soulfulness in the the science. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what I've managed to find here at Schumacher College. I found a way of combining those two sides of myself. So what comes to my mind and heart is how does your relationship with nature feed your gift as a storyteller? Uh, it's interesting. Well, I think nature is one great story. Nature is a huge story. Um, so whenever I go out into the woods, I'm listening to the story of nature and finding out more. <clears throat> you know, every time a leaf falls from a tree or every time some you hear water rushing by in a river, that is all a kind of story. Um, and the stories have many different layers. For example, in the case of the leaf, of course, you can now it's autumn in England. That's why I'm talking about falling leaves. Mm-hmm. You can see the leaves falling and the beautiful yellow colors a story in themselves just 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 the the pattern of the way the leaves fall is very full of story and full of meaning full of communication but also through the science we know that those leaves hold carbon atoms that were once in the atmosphere warming the earth and that as they fall they're delivering that carbon into the soil and that those leaves will be decomposed by earthworms and woodlice and other organisms and that uh, in this way, the carbon will be journeying through the body of the earth, through the body of Gaia. Um, so you can also detect a, a, a more invisible story, which is based on the science of uh, you know, the story of carbon and its journey through the earth and how that journey helps to determine the temperature of the earth. So there are many layers of story. Uh, and um, I think if you practice this sort of Gaian view, uh, the stories become more and more vibrant and apparent as you walk around in nature. Stefan, you've had a, a, a very long relationship with James Lovelock. 
What is uh, your conversation with him at this time? Uh, well, it's it's really a, about what is Gaia. Uh, how can we understand her scientifically? Uh, mostly because he's very much um, a scientist. But it's also about the philosophy of Gaia, how Gaia can affect our view of the world and how it can inspire us to uh, treat the Earth in a kinder way. But my conversation with him over the years has at least, for half of it, or maybe three-quarters of it, has been about the science of Gaia. You know, how, how can we understand Gaia scientifically? What does it mean for a planet to be alive? Um, how can that be a scientifically valid concept? What are the, what, what's the evidence for the Earth, in some sense, being an organism? Um, but it's also wonderful to be with him because he's a, an absolutely wonderful, gentle, kind and hugely intelligent person. Um, and I often feel that when I go and see him, um, I'm preparing to climb a huge mountain mm-hmm. and, and join someone who's, got, who's living at the top of the mountain. He's got a fantastically panoramic view uh, of reality, you know, particularly uh, the ecology of our planet. So it's always wonderful to spend some time with him uh, on top of that mountain and share his vista. I always find it deeply inspiring and refreshing. And he has a, a certain way of uh, making you feel really nurtured, you know, and valued. Mm. Um, and to be valued by someone like that is really quite uh, special because he's, he really is a very special person, not just uh, a genius as a scientist. And I think it's fair to say that he's a genius. Uh, but also someone with a very kind heart and a very big soul. And I think that combination is very, very inspiring. So I've been very lucky to be able to spend time with him over the years and just um, imbibe his Skyan vision, which is more than scientific. But of course, it starts from the science. I'm thinking of asking you, why is it that... Uh, fortunately, in the last generation or so, we have, some of us anyway, have become more aware of our our relationship and immersion in our environment. Mm. Yes, I don't know. I can't answer that definitively. But, uh, I mean, I think I've got two answers, a shallow one and a deeper one. The shallow one is easy to validate. The deeper one is more speculative. The shallow one is that simply as the crisis, the ecological crisis has got more serious and as the evidence of climate change and ecological disruption and also social disruption as a result of capitalism um, come in and we have these more and more data and more and more evidence, I think more and more people, (coughs) excuse me, are convinced that we really, we really are changing the climate of the Earth, mm-hmm. and that we really start, should start doing something about it. So I think basically the superficial answer would be that things are, uh, are getting more serious and that more evidence is coming in. I mean, that terrible storm in the Philippines just now, although we can't say definitively that it's linked to climate change, it's, you know, I would have thought it's not, you can't discount the fact that Climate, it might, might be related to climate change. I'm being very cautious here as, you know, as mm-hmm. a scientist. Mm-hmm. And there have, been, there have been many severe weather events all over the world over the last decade particularly. 
even here in England, where these things don't usually happen. We've had tremendous flooding. Um, so, you see, on a superficial level, I think people are just becoming more aware because uh, adverse things are happening to the climate all over the place. On a deeper level, I like to think, and of course I have no evidence for this, but I like to think that there's something more archetypal afoot. Because um, if it's true, as all the traditional cultures have said, and even as Plato in our own culture said long ago, that there's some kind of world soul or an anima mundi, or mm-hmm. that the cosmos is a, a great consciousness, that it's not a machine, that this great uh, universal consciousness or mind will, of course, be feeling very disturbed about what's happening on the planet. And maybe through people's unconscious minds, um, it may be acting to bring the problems to people's awareness. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm really very fond of Jung. I like his thinking and his experiencing. And so I think, I like to think that this might be the case, that the anima mundi, the soul of the world, is coming much more into our consciousness uh, as a compensation for the crisis that we're wreaking uh, on the physical planet. as a kind of psychological compensation within ourselves from the unconscious that's bringing uh, the importance of ecology and the importance of a good relationship with nature into more and more people's minds. And I can only hope that this this happens at a faster and faster rate. I mean, there is evidence already that um, there's a slowdown in CO2 emissions beginning to happen across the world. It's too early to say whether it really is an effect, uh, a long-term effect, or whether it's just a little blip. But there does seem to be a decoupling between conventional economic growth and uh, carbon dioxide and gre- other greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, and this could be because many individuals around the planet are changing their light bulbs, insulating their homes, driving less, etc., etc. Mm-hmm. So it could be that many small-scale actions by people who are becoming aware of the problems are already being felt uh, in the climate. Too early to say, but it's possible that we're beginning to see the turning around of the situation. I'm wondering, um, in your relationship with your students, the, um, the young generation, what stories can you tell, tell us about your students' inquisitiveness and uh, their discoveries? And... Mm. Yes. Well, I'm very impressed by how uh, they are so deeply concerned about what's happening to the earth and how, how deeply connected they are the earth and also how deeply in touch they are with their own feelings as well of course with their thinking minds which the students here are very well developed but our students are very aware that it's not enough to be a good intellectual and to be able to think clearly or a good scientist to be able to really think clearly you also have to be good at feeling and good at intuition and good at sensory connection with the world and i'm very impressed how our students are very willing to explore intuitive not knowing. In fact, um, I would say many of them really consider that intuitive knowing and the cultivation of intuitive knowing is as important, if not more important, than intellectual knowing. So in other words, the right approach to the world, the right feeling for the world is very important. Um, <clears throat> because then, when you make scientific discoveries, you're able to communicate them in a way which... Um, allows people to feel that the Earth is not a machine, 
that is not a dead lump of rock, but that it is in some sense alive, uh, in a sense that we don't fully understand as yet. So I love working with the students at Schumacher College because they're very open. In fact, they demand to have an education in which their intuition is cultivated as much as their intellectual capacity, their thinking mind. So that's very important here. So in the teaching at Schumacher College, um, I have a mixture of um, sessions in the classroom, which I try to make really interactive, but also we spend a lot of time outside doing meditations in nature. And the students respond beautifully. Then they, you can see them flourishing and growing and uh, creating their own meditations and getting many insights, and sometimes through dreams, uh, sometimes through poetry, sometimes through a mathematical equation. They can get tremendous insights and a tremendous sense of belonging to the earth. And of course, when that happens to them, it happens to me as well. It happens to the whole group together. So we grow together as a group of learners. And I find that that's really incredibly nourishing and deeply exciting. And I think it's the way um, education could be everywhere if we could only allow ourselves to cultivate our intuitive knowing as much as our thinking and intellectual knowing. So maybe this depends on uh, the relationship between poetry and mathematics. Can you speak about how these two things are related? Mm. Well, I think if you really go deeply into a mathematical equation uh, or a series of mathematical equations, it's very poetic. I mean, an example I've worked with myself a lot is um, James Lovelock's Daisy World model which is a series of equations, six equations, if I remember correctly, um, that describe how um, a simple species of daisy with uh, either light-colored petals or dark-colored petals affects the temperature of the earth. Um, and it's absolutely beautifully poetic. The equations are brief, succinct, powerful. They're, they're linked together through feedback. They feed into each other. They weave into each other uh, like a... Like a Celtic knot, you know, mm -hmm. the numbers flow from one equation to another and back again and into another equation. It's like a flow of a river. And, and we get this beautiful emergent property coming out of them, which is that the, the planet as a whole is able to regulate its temperature over geological time. So the whole thing is at the same time scientific and poetic. And I think science itself is deeply poetic. I mean, what we've discovered about the cosmos, you know, the vastness of the cosmos, and now we're discovering about um, planets that might be like the Earth, um, that might be habitable around their stars. All of these things that evoke a kind of mythological, poetic dimension in ourselves. And I think we really should allow the science to evoke that in us. But often what happens is that we, we just think of things mechanistically, and so they just become dry facts without any sort of soul juice in them. And I think we need to help people to really feel the wonder and mystery of it all, of course, which, of course, the great scientists always have done. People like Einstein and I think Darwin in his earlier days as well felt the connection between poetry or the unity between poetry and science. And I think we need to teach science and expose people to science in that way as a science-poetry simultaneously And, you know, there are many people that can do that. For example, in, in America, you have Brian Swim, the great mm -hmm. cosmologist, who, who writes beautifully 
about the cosmos in a way that's scientifically correct, but also deeply poetic. Um, so this is a, a new genre that's gradually coming forth. I tried to do this in my own book, um, Animate Earth. I tried to speak of the Earth poetically, but based entirely on the science. This is something I think that we need to cultivate more um, for people in the culture, to see how science can lead you into uh, the poetic and the mythical. So that, that's a good service to do for the culture, I think. So perhaps you would like to uh, play with us for a moment. When I have been the, the loneliest is when I have believed that uh, we live in abstraction and that the world is abstract. So what I mean by playing with us for a moment, could you speak to us about the opposite in a contemplative way about the opposite of abstraction, which might be aliveness. Mm. Well, one example that comes to mind is, uh, once again, the story of carbon. If you study the, the carbon cycle, or the carbon cycles, as they're called in science, you know, it's, it can be very abstract. You're dealing with big numbers, with um, mathematical equations, with systems diagrams. And that can be very abstract. You can, you can, it can become a sort of intellectual game. But sometimes it's very difficult to connect with, with the reality. The numbers are very big. It's, we can't see the cycles. You know, it's, it's an abstract game. And it leaves me, anyway, sometimes feeling very interested and intrigued intellectually. But um, something missing there. So the way I play with that is to tell the story of carbon as a fairy tale, well, whilst keeping very carefully to um, the correctness of it all scientifically. So, for example, I would say that carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, the carbon in the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is like a prince. Uh, and for me, he's a Swedish prince, the carbon, I think because he's very friendly and very cooperative and likes to link up with other carbons. So I would think of him as a Swedish prince. And the way that the Earth's temperature has been kept habitable over geological time is because of a love affair between the carbon prince in the atmosphere and the calcium princesses that are found in rocks such as granite and basalt. And it's, it's the way the two of them get together and get married with the help of water from the rain, the help of plant roots and microbes on the rock and... Uh, the rivers and uh, marine algae in the ocean and plate tectonics. It's the way all of those huge and all forces come together um, to help them get married, experience marriage, and then once again separate. Uh, it's that love story, that sort of fairy mm -hmm. story of their coming together, their yearning for each other, that uh, has kept the earth habitable over geological time. So... I often use that story as an example of how one can take <clears throat> incredibly interesting scientific findings, which can seem very abstract and indeed are very abstract, and how one, one can convert them into something of the soul, something that one can relate to with one's heart. Um, and I find this is very, very effective. It helps people to really get a sense of, as David Abraham, my great friend, would say, of living 
not on the earth, but in the earth, immersed mm -hmm. in in the massive magnitude of the atmosphere, uh, you know, and getting a sense of the huge bulk of the planet and of how it's how she's moving around the sun part, as part of the solar system. So I think um, restoring the science and using the modality of the fairy story mm -hmm. uh, is a very good way of moving out of the abstraction and into the place of heart and soul without losing um, the rigor that the intellect demands. I often think that um, the science is like a bone that you throw to the thinking mind, you know, and you let the, the thinking mind is like a dog that needs a bone to chew. <laughs> so you throw it some, some interesting information and it starts chewing on it. And whilst that dog is like a guard dog, if you like, mm. is busy chewing, the soul of things can come out and become more evident. Um, and that's what I try to do in my teaching, to, to let the soul that lurks behind the scientific descriptions come to the front using the science. So I want to tell you this little story. One day here in Santa Fe, David Abraham and I are sitting in a grocery store and I say to him, do you think that um, everything that rises converges? And he goes, no, I think we're all tumbling into each other. Oh, that's good. I love that. I love yeah. that. Mm. Well, David Abraham's one of the, uh, has really got a very deep understanding of um, the soul and the sensuous nature of reality. He's a very important figure for us today, I think. So, Stefan, um, would you kindly define what soul means to you? Mm, it's very hard to define soul. Because <clears throat> if we try to define it, of course, we're using our thinking minds, and soul is not of the thinking mind. <clears throat> so it's very, very difficult to define what soul is. I think one can experience it. Uh, but it's hard to define it because we're swimming in it. But if you really force me to try, <laughs> uh, you, you know, I can make a really feeble effort. Um, I like to think of music as, as a, a way into soul. I really like flamenco music, for example. Uh, but it can be any, any kind of good quality music that really... M when you listen to it, moves you into a broader, deeper dimension of things. Um, uh, there seems to be something of meaning, uh, often very hard to express. Um, there seems to be a flow. Uh, there seems to be a deepening. And I think soul is like that. I think soul is about meaning. So when you're seeing through your soul or when you're experiencing soul, Everything is full of meaning, even though the thinking mind can't articulate what that meaning is. It's something you can sense, that, there's, that the universe is about something, it's up to something, that there's a, some ineffable purpose or some, it's up to something. That we can't say what it is, but we get a sense that whatever it is, it's very wholesome and very good, and that we should align ourselves with it. Of course, in science, to say such things is complete sin. You know, it's the sin of teleology. <laughs> is the sin of imputing purpose to blind mechanical nature. Um, but never mind about that. We can put that to one side. Yes. So I think soul is about f uh, a flowing meaning. Uh, 
It's about a flow of meaning in which one is completely immersed. Uh, so you're not standing on the riverbank looking at the flow of meaning flowing past you in the soulful approach. You are swimming in the soulful approach. You're, you're really, you yourself are tumbling along in the flow of meaning. And the meaning unfolds in your life and hopefully you can see more and more meaning as your life unfolds, but you never get to the ultimate meaning. They're just hints uh, of meaning, which of course makes it very interesting because if you were able to get to the ultimate meaning, then it would become boring. How could, how could we ever get to the ultimate meaning uh, of the universe since the universe is so vast and mysterious and magnificent? It's obviously beyond us ever to get to an ultimate meaning. And I think that sense of mystery is very much part of soul as well. But soul is also little things, you know, it's about enjoying a warm cup of tea, the sensual experience of a cup of tea, the sensual experience of being with friends, with other people. These are all things, again, where meaning appears. So in, in essence, I suppose I would say soul is, um, is a flow of meaning in which one is deeply immersed as a participant, not as an observer. So, since we are with the river and the flowing and the immersion, let's go together to the meaning and the science of water so that perhaps some of us who are listening can develop more of, a, of an intimacy with what water is to us. Mm -hmm. With water? With yes, water. water, water. Yes, water, yes. Well, water is, of course, uh, very important and deeply mysterious on many different levels. Um, one could say that without water, of course, there's no life. Life is absolutely, water is essential for life, at least life as we know it. And water has this extraordinary fluidity. It has also the ability to become ice which is, and snow, which are very important for regulating the temperature of Gaia. Um, some people say that water can hold memories. You know, this is obviously the basis of homeopathy. I find that very interesting. Mm -hmm. Water is able to hold memories in, in some way in its molecular structure. Um, uh, but on a more mundane level, we do know that water is absolutely essential for keeping plate tectonics going. That's to say the subduction of huge slabs of oceanic rock um, beneath continents and so on. And that without that, without water lubricating plate tectonics, that we, we wouldn't have a livable planet. So actually the relationship between life and water is essential because without living beings, uh, the planet would have dried out. We would have lost all the water um, maybe a thousand million years ago or so. So life has kept the planet moist. And in keeping the planet moist, um, plate tectonics has been able to continue and that has been able to regulate help to regulate the earth's temperature so you see there's a, a fantastic interconnection between life water plate tectonics and climate so i think of water as the sort of um, facilitator and lubricant of not just the living process but also the geological process um, so it's a very magical substance both from a physical, scientific point of view and also from an archetypal point of view. So, 
speaking about your uh, film, Animate Earth, what did you learn uh, from the people that were interviewed uh, in the film? One thing that comes to mind immediately uh, is from the interview with Jules Cashford. Jules Cashford is uh, a Jungian analyst, and she's also uh, a classical scholar who reads ancient Greek. And she has studied not just Jung, but also uh, many myths of um, the anima, the, the, the goddess, in many, many different cultures particularly in ancient Greek culture. So from her I learned that the Greeks talked about two kinds of knowing. Gnosis, which is empathic knowing, I would say sort of knowing of the soul, um, a compassionate knowing, a knowing with one's feeling and intuition. Gnosis, from which we get the word gnostic, you know. Mm -hmm. And then the other way is episteme, from which we get from which we get epistemology and that's knowing about that's more uh, a distance knowing a more abstract knowing a more scientific knowing um, and I found it very interesting that the ancient Greeks were aware of these two kinds of knowing um, and that many of them not all of them but many of them tended to emphasize uh, gnosis that kind of knowledge um, but of course in our culture we've focused very much on episteme mm. And then the other interesting thing was that Ian McGilchrist, who we interviewed for the film, who is um, a really interesting um, psychiatrist, but also he was a don, an English don at Oxford at All Souls College, which is one of you know one of the very top colleges in Oxford. He linked uh, these two ways of knowing with the actual physical structure of our brains, mm -hmm. um, and pointed out in his book. Um, the Master and His Emissary, which is a, an absolute masterpiece. Mm -hmm. He pointed out in his book that um, the gnosis aspect of knowing is linked very much to the right hemisphere of our brain. And episteme is linked to the left. Um, and they both see the world, the same world, in complementary but different ways. And in his book, he traces how episteme has come to dominate uh, over gnosis and shows how this has led to the terrible crisis that we now have. So those are two of the, two of the important um, learnings that I, I gained from making that film. Mm -hmm. So, speak to us about the mysterious personhood of the Earth. And do you think she has a right brain and a left brain? <laughs> I don't think she has a left brain and a right brain. Uh, I think that's, that's for, for the animal world. Um, yes, it's very hard to speak about the personhood of the Earth. First thing I would say is that, of course, science doesn't like that sort of language, so we have to leave science behind. Uh, and we have to enter into uh, this deeper realm of soulful knowing to answer that question. Um, now, for me, the Earth definitely has a soul and a personhood. Um, and I feel that she's evolved um, from the very origins of life, you know, uh, when life, first of all, only lived in very small pockets of the planet and then eventually 
life managed to, to uh, find itself all over the planet. And since then, life, atmosphere and water and rocks have been evolving together, co-evolving over billions of years. So I think the personhood of the Earth um, has been changing. It's more like a person maturing, becoming deeper, more experienced, wiser. <clears throat> and there have been terrible crises on the Earth as well. There have been global glaciations, there have been meteorite impacts, there have been mass extinctions. And these are a bit like crises in our own personal lives. Mm -hmm. So I think now the Earth has reached uh, a very high level of maturity. I also think part of the personality of the Earth and of the universe is to be really creative and really experimental. So I think um, the universe and the Earth are constantly playing with new ideas, new possibilities, new species, new relationships, simply to see what happens out of a sense of joy uh, in experimentation. I think the Gaia is incredibly experimental. She's constantly throwing out new species, exploring new relationships. And of course, the latest experiment that this great artist, the Earth, uh, this great scientist, the Earth, this great philosopher, the Earth, has come up with is us. And uh, we don't know exactly how that's going to turn out, you know. Um, she's also a great risk, risk taker. Um, she takes risks and hopes for the best. So far, it's worked. Hopefully, with us, it'll work out too. So, in essence, the personality of the Earth is uh, artistic. Uh, I would say that she's an, a deeply artistic, poetic, uh, creative risk taker who loves to explore meaning through dangerous situations. Uh, she's always on the edge, always never quite knowing what's going to happen next, but she likes to be on the edge where things get a little bit risky for her. But so far she's managed to survive, and every time she pulls out of a crisis, she's deeper, richer, more interesting, and also, of course, therefore can nourish her beings um, psychologically even more. So now the Earth has reached a point of in her development as a person that she's so rich and full of experience that we can benefit from that just by simply contemplating her, her oceans, her forests, you know, her clouds, her water. We can benefit so much from that experience. That's why Earth uh, and being in nature is so incredibly nourishing because the personality of the Earth is now so rich and diverse that when we contemplate it, when we're open to her language and to her meanings, we can discover in ourselves an equivalent depth of richness and meaning. And finally, um, Stefan, tell us what you mean when you call the Earth her. Well, you see, I think I'm going along there with uh, the ancient Greeks uh, and the myth of Hesiod and the creation myth from our culture. Not just our culture, actually, many, many cultures in which there's always something about primordial, some, a primordial energy. In Hesiod, it's, he calls it chaos, vast and dark, a primordial energy, a primordial intelligence that was incorporeal. It didn't have a sort of physical form. It was just a huge, powerful intelligence and soul. And it wanted to become something, says Hesiod. And the first thing it became, he reports, is the deep-breasted earth female. Um, so for Hesiod, for the ancient Greeks, 
and for many other cultures, the earth is archetypally female. And it makes sense because, you know, we're all born out of her. The word, our word for material, it comes from mater, mother. We're made out of material, out of matter, mater. We're made out of mother, mother's flesh. Our mother's flesh is, of course, the atoms and molecules that we now know about through science, the carbon, the nitrogen, the sulfur. We've been mothered by the earth herself into existence. And so it makes complete sense from a human point of view for the earth to be feminine. Um, and, of course, the myths tell us that she's, that it, I don't like the word it in relation to the earth, but mm. that the earth is feminine. And so I think, for me, in my feelings, it makes complete sense for the earth to be uh, Mother Earth. Mm. And also, of course, when you die, she takes you back into her embrace and she takes you back into herself and remakes you once again and redistributes you into the whole of her body. Um is also a nurturing function of the earth and of course the other aspect of her is that if you misbehave yourself as we are doing right now she can get rather fierce um so it's it's not all a sort of mother earth not all a sort of love um what's the word i'm looking for it's not all a cozy relationship with the earth as it is with a pair with a good parent you know for a good parent sometimes needs to be quite stern with their child so that they can put them in the right direction. It's the same with the earth. She can, uh, we can invoke her, her angry side. So for all those reasons, uh, for me and for many, many, many others, the earth is feminine. But of course, we have to remember that by saying feminine, we're, we can, we're doing what we can only do as humans, which is to relate to the earth mm -hmm. as humans. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Stefan, thank you uh, for your beautiful expression of poetry, of science. And uh, I just want to ask you if you'd like to say something in closing. Yes, well, I, I would like to say, uh, say to your listeners, um, or help suggest to your listeners, maybe to do what they're already doing, and that is to simply go out in nature, into the woods or into the mountains, wherever they may be, or even into their backyard, or even if they're in a city, to look at a, a little window box or a, or a plant in a pot, to, to just, or a cloud in the sky, just to make some connection with something living, uh, and just spend time with that living being, whether the forest or a plant or whatever it may be, large or small, just to spend time with that living being, quietly, content, contemplatively, And just become aware of what comes up uh, in your mind as you do that. And hopefully you'll find a great sense of peace and tranquility. And I would urge listeners to cultivate that sense of connection with nature. Also, if listeners have a chance to be out in a forest or in a mountain or by a stream, to regard everything they can see and hear and sense as the language of Gaia. Everything is language, everything speaks, everything is alive, everything is animate. Allow everything to speak to you. Allow yourself to be totally immersed in a living, speaking, animate world full of many, many kinds of souls. And then finally, I would say, based on those experiences, really ask yourself the question, how much stuff do I really need to consume? How much, how much material stuff? How many cell phones, computers, washing machines, cars? 
all of these things. How much do I really need? How much stuff is it vital for me to have? And then try to live a much simpler life, materially simpler life, but also a life that's rich in uh, experiences of nature and also experiences in community with other people. So I like the terminology of my friend Arnie Ness, which was uh, simple in means, rich in ends. Simple in means, rich in ends. So you live a simple life with minimum impact on the planet, but you have a fantastically rich life in terms of relationship to other people, relationship with nature, and uh, growth of spirituality. So I hope uh, all your listeners uh, and can move in this direction, uh, along with many, many other people, those of us at Schumacher College and many, many other people around the planet who are now waking up to the power of simplicity and the power of Gaia. Thank you with all my heart, uh, Stefan Harding, for your visit with us. Mm, thank you for inviting me. It was a great pleasure speaking with you. <laughs>